to act as a focus for each of our four studies on the biblical doctrine of heaven, I have chosen a short uh, phrase from the Bible to epitomize the subject of our study each evening. Yesterday we took as our theme phrase that statement from the prophecy of Isaiah, created for my glory. Our summarizing phrase uh, this evening is from the book of the Revelation, chapter 21 and verse 23. And the phrase is, the Lamb is its light. The Lamb is its light. Many of the descriptions which we have of heaven in the Bible are expressed in symbolic terms. Pictures, metaphors, often very strange and rather alien to us. They are quite hard for us to understand. Take, for example, that used in Revelation chapter 1 where the new Jerusalem is described as a massive cube, 1,500 miles in size every way, made, we are told, of pure gold like clear glass, with 12 gates of pearl, a high wall made of jasper, and built on 12 precious stones. That's a wonderful description, but we have to confess that there is something rather mysterious about it. It is hard to understand. But there is one description which is predominant in the New Testament. One way in which, above all, heaven is described more than any other way. A description which is gloriously clear and wonderfully simple. So much so that the youngest boy or girl here this evening can understand this way in which God has described heaven. And children, this is God's favorite way of describing heaven. God's special way. And it is this. Heaven means being with Jesus. Heaven means being with Jesus. In John chapter 14, the Lord is speaking to his troubled and anxious disciples. And he wants to reassure them about the future. And he says in verse 3, I will come again and receive you to myself. And here's the statement that where I am, there you may be also. And that is all the Lord tells them about heaven. And that is enough. That is all he needs to tell them. But where I am, you may be. No more details. But again he prays in John seventeen twenty four, Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me may be with me where I am. Again, that's all the description. With me where I am. That's heaven. Or again, he speaks to the dying robber on the cross. A little bit fuller, but not much. Today, you will be with me in paradise. Heaven means being with Jesus. As far as I know, Nowhere does the New Testament speak of believers going to heaven. We're never told of, of a believer dying and going to heaven. It's always going to be with Christ. Paul says in Philippians 1.23, I desire to depart. And he doesn't say I, de I desire to depart and go to heaven. He says I desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. For Paul, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Heaven means Jesus. So much so that they're almost equated. We said last night that heaven is almost the same as the glory of God. 
And we can also say that heaven is almost the same as the Lord Jesus Christ. We want to ask this evening why this close identification between the Son of God and that place, for it is a place called heaven. Why is being with Christ such a major component of heaven? Why, when the New Testament wants to tell us what heaven is like, does it constantly remind us that it is to be with Christ? Why can John say in our theme text, Revelation 21:23, of the holy city, the Lamb is its light, or better, the Lamb is its lamp? Why this closeness of identification between the Lord Jesus Christ and heaven. We know that heaven is his home. We know that he came down from heaven to earth. He tells us that. We know that he returned to heaven. He tells us that. We know that he is in heaven now. The Bible tells us that. But there must be more to it than this. And this evening, friends, I would like to look with you at three reasons why the main truth taught in the Bible about heaven is that we are with Christ. And the first reason is this. Because it is Christ who brings us to heaven. Because it is Christ who brings us to heaven. And therefore we cannot think of heaven without thinking of the one who has brought us to heaven. The two are inseparable. We saw yesterday evening that heaven is that place where God's glory shines in brilliance and splendor. We'd see God willing on a later evening that heaven is a place of perfect human happiness. And the great question is, how can you and I who are sinners come to this wonderful place? How can we arrive in this location of glory? And surely it must be obvious to us that we can never reach heaven through anything that we ourselves can ever do. We can never get ourselves to heaven. We can never qualify for heaven or earn heaven or lift ourselves up to heaven. The mere supposition is ludicrous. We think of our past sins and how many and how grievous they are. And how they utterly disqualify you and me from ever being in that holy place where naught that defiles shall ever enter in. You and I would defile it. We think of our present limitations. How could we, in, in the dimness and limitations of our spiritual understanding, bear upon our naked spirits the uncreated beam of the glory of God. We would be annihilated. You and I could not bear a second of heaven. Its glory would consume us. It would blow us to pieces. We would be undone. How can we ever think that no matter how hard we try in the future, we shall ever be worthy or capable of entering heaven. There's an almost universal idea that we can deserve heaven. That's what people think. It's right for them to go to heaven. They're worthy of going to heaven. That's what all other religions are based on. That is the hope of the man or woman in the street. My friends, one glimpse of heaven, one millisecond of heaven would render any such notion 
absolutely preposterous. If we could see for a fraction of a second the glory of heaven, we would realize our utter incapacity and unworthiness and inability of ever reaching or being present in that place. Sooner could a worm aspire to be a brain surgeon than a sinner hope to work their own passage to glory. We must have this crystal clear in our minds. In and of ourselves there is no hope, absolutely no hope that we shall ever reach heaven or ever be found in that place. No matter what we do, no matter how hard we try, or how much we give, or how much we strive, never, never, never. There is only one way, and that is through the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. No one comes to the Father. No one enters heaven. No one enters the glory except through me. And we know, I'm sure, how he brings us to heaven. He brings his people to heaven by redeeming us through his life and death and resurrection. He came to this earth so that those who believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. He dealt with the sins of his people. He was punished for our sins in his own body at Calvary. God's justice was fully satisfied. He paid in full for our transgressions. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And the Lord Jesus also provided for each one of his people a perfect, spotless righteousness. He kept God's law perfectly. He obtained the stainless righteousness, the righteousness of God. And that righteousness is given to each one of us when we believe in him. A pure, white, spotless robe of glory so that in it we are equipped to enter heaven and to live in heaven that righteousness which is through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe and now that he is raised and at the father's right hand he is changing us as we heard by his spirit we are new creatures he is sanctifying us he is equipping us for heaven Jesus brings us to heaven by his life, death, and resurrection. And he brings us to heaven also through his present ministry from heaven. That's a neglected doctrine in the church. But none of us could persevere for one moment unless at this very moment, at this very moment, from heaven's glory, the Lord Jesus Christ, your merciful and faithful high priest, were interceding for you with the Father and holding you before the Father and upholding you and me at this very second by his Spirit and strengthening us by his Spirit. If he were to remove his hand, we would fall. We speak of the perseverance of the saints as if that were some innate quality which is placed in us. But that is not the case. The perseverance of the saints means that for every second of your life, Jesus will hold you and Jesus will keep you and Jesus will guard you and we will persevere because we are being preserved. And so we have a merciful and faithful high priest and he is able to aid those who are tempted and we are able to come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need 
And he is able also to save those to the uttermost who come to God through him since he ever lives to make intercession for them. He's bringing you to heaven now if you're a Christian. He's holding you in his hands and he's bringing you to heaven. He says to you, Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. And then he puts your name and he says, but I have prayed for you and I'm praying for you that your faith may not fail. My friends, isn't that a wonderful thing to think of the present ministry of Jesus who's holding us and bringing us to heaven. And he's doing it as king of the universe, head over all things to his church, reigning till he has put all his enemies under his feet. Because of that, his work is completely effective. And it is certain that every single child of God will reach heaven. He says, I give unto them eternal life and they shall never perish neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand yesterday evening I quoted from Psalm 73 how we thank God for those pronouns you hold me by my right hand if you're going out on a busy street with a small child do you hold the child's hand or do you let the child hold your hand? The answer is obvious. You don't let your child hold your hand. You hold their hand. They may let go at any moment. You're not going to let go. And the psalmist doesn't say, I hold you. The psalmist says, you hold me. It is Jesus who brings us to heaven. When I was a young boy, my father had a friend who was a millionaire. He wasn't a millionaire when he and my father became friends. They were both poor. And although I didn't realize it at the time, my father remained a poor man uh, and we remained a poor family until he died. Although we never felt poor, but looking back on it, we were poor. And this millionaire regarded my father as his best friend because he was the one man in the world who didn't want anything from him. He didn't want his money. He didn't want him to do anything for him. He just wanted to be his friend. But once in the early 50s, this man took my father on a visit to America. They traveled by an ocean liner uh, from France across the Atlantic, seven days across the Atlantic. They traveled throughout this whole continent. It was the experience of my father's lifetime. And for the rest of his life, whenever he talked about that trip, he never said, when I went to America, he always said, when I was with Noble. Noble was his friend. And the trip was so completely the gift and the providing of his friend that he could never think of the trip without thinking of the friend who made it possible. And when we think of heaven, we can never think of heaven apart from thinking of Jesus. For we owe it all completely and utterly and in every possible way and in every detail to Jesus. Over the gate of hell and on the floor and the wall of hell is written the word deserved. Deserved. Hell is deserved. But on the walls of heaven are written the words, free gift, God's grace. Christ is central because it is Christ alone who brings us to heaven. Secondly, Christ is central in the biblical doctrine of heaven because he is seen clearly only in heaven. He is seen clearly only in heaven. What a blessing it is to be a Christian now. To know that you're a child of God and to trust the Savior. But friends, our Christian experience on this earth is far from perfect. 
And one aspect of its incompleteness is that Christ, our Savior, is the one who is not seen. And he is described in several places in the New Testament as the one who is not seen. Faith, we are told, is the evidence of things not seen. Peter says of Christ, having not seen him, you love him. The Lord says in John 20, 29, referring to us, blessed are those who have not seen me and yet have believed. We are believers. We trust in Christ, but we are those who have not seen him. We have never seen him. Sometimes we almost see him, don't we? Sometimes he comes very near. His presence is very close. Perhaps a crisis in your life. Perhaps a time of great trial or great exaltation when the Spirit of God is working powerfully in your heart, then you feel the closeness of Christ. Samuel Rutherford said, when Christ comes, he stays not long, but certainly the blowing of his breath upon a poor soul is heaven upon earth. And there are those moments, and some of us experience them, alas, all too rarely, when we almost see him. But we long to see our Lord. We long to see him more clearly, to see him more permanently, to see him past the cloudiness and interruptions of faith. And the Bible tells us that heaven is where we shall see our Savior. Heaven is where we shall see our Savior. He will no longer be not seen. He will be seen. Job says, I know that my Redeemer lives, and in my flesh I shall see God. In Isaiah 33:17, the prophet says, Your eyes shall see the King in his beauty. Paul says, Now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. And the great and supreme text on this subject, 1 John chapter 3, verse 3, we shall see him as he is. Heaven is where you and I will see our Savior fully and clearly for the first time. We shall gaze into his face. We shall look at his matchless beauty. And I confess that at this point, words fail me. And I feel it would be cheap if I were to try to spin a flight of human oratory. For either there's an echo in your heart or there isn't. What does it mean to you to know that you will see Jesus? that you will look in the face of your Savior when the King in his beauty without a veil is seen. John was the beloved disciple and when he saw his master he said, I fell at his feet as one dead. Peter, James and John saw a little bit of the glory for a few moments and they said, Master, it is good for us to be here. What will we say when we see the King? There's something almost touching in one of our Lord's requests to his Father. Chapter 17, verse 24, he prays, Father, I desire that they also, whom you gave me, may be with me where I am that they may behold my glory, which you have given me. We want our friends to see us at our best. We want our family to see us at our best. When the young boys 
achieving some athletic accomplishment. He wants his parents to be there. When the young girl is giving the uh, commencement address at college, she wants her parents to be there to see what she can do. And it's almost as if the Lord Jesus looks at his disciples and says to his father, Father, there is so much of me they have never seen. They've only seen a very little bit of my glory. I want to show them who I am. I want to unveil myself to them. I want you to show them all my glory. And he prays, Father, may they be with me that they may behold my glory. And when we see the glory of our Savior, we will be overwhelmed with love and admiration and worship. We will say with the Beloved in the Song of Solomon, Your voice is sweet and your countenance is lovely. My Beloved is the chief among ten thousand. He is altogether lovely. We have seen something of the loveliness of Christ if we're believers, but we've seen practically nothing, nothing to what we will see of all his glory and beauty. And we'll be moved to the depths. We'll be filled with gratitude and wonder. You remember John Bunyan's Mr. Standfast. And just before he dies, he says, I am going now to see that head that was crowned with thorns and that face that was spat upon for me. I have formerly lived by hearsay and faith, but now I go where I shall live by sight and shall be with him in whose company I delight myself. When I see thee as thou art, Robert Murray McShane wrote, then, Lord, shall I fully know, not till then, how much I owe. When I see thee as thou art. The Son of God, will say, who loved me and gave himself for me, that will be the most wonderful sight in heaven. That will be the most wonderful sight in heaven. Many years ago, Samuel Rutherford wrote to one of his correspondents, Lady Kenmure, and he used the illustration of a marriage. And he wrote in his letter, The bride taketh not by one thousand degrees so much delight in her wedding garment as she doth in her bridegroom. So we in the life to come shall not be so much affected by the glory that go about us as we are with the bridegroom's joyful face and presence. You sing a version of those words, don't you? The bride eyes not her garment, but her dear bridegroom's face. I will not gaze at glory, but at my King of grace. Not at the crown he given, but at his pierced hand. The Lamb is all the glory in Emmanuel's land. That's why when the Bible tells us about heaven, it tells us about Christ. For that is what we want in heaven. And that is what we long to see Above all else, our Savior. Christ is central in the biblical doctrine of heaven. Firstly, because he brings us to heaven. Secondly, because he is seen clearly in heaven. We are with him there forever. So far, so good. Christ has brought us to heaven. We're very, very grateful. We see him clearly in heaven. We are filled with wonder. But we might say, what happens next? We're grateful that Christ has brought, him, brought us to heaven 
and we have enjoyed looking at him and seeing him. Now, what about the rest of heaven? Now, what are we going to do to all eternity? Having thanked Christ and having admired Christ, are we not ready to move on from Christ to other things and to explore all the wonders of heaven? And the answer to that is never, never, never. For thirdly, Christ is at the heart of all the blessings of heaven. Christ is at the heart of all the blessings of heaven. Heaven is the fulfillment of the promise, I will be your God and you will be my people. And to understand that, we have to step for a moment into the realm of covenant theology. Don't be frightened by that term. It is a wonderful and exciting and very simple idea. I can assure you. The covenant is the mechanism, if you like, through which God brings about heaven. I will be your God and you will be my people. And at the heart of covenant theology is the idea of a head, a representative, or a mediator. And the most brilliant illustration of covenant theology, which I have come across, is that of the Puritan theologian Thomas Goodwin. And Goodwin puts it this way. He says, in the sight of God, there are only two men, Adam and Christ. And all, and all other men are hanging at the girdle strings of one of these two. So you're to imagine two great giants. One's called Adam and the other one's called Christ. And each giant is, is wearing a massive leather belt. And there are millions of little hooks on that leather belt. And you and I are either hanging on Adam's belt or we're hanging on Christ's belt. There is no other place to hang. There is no other place to be. And, and God either deals with us through Adam or through Christ. And if you're hanging on Adam's belt, God always deals with you through Adam. There is no other way in which God deals with you. All his dealings come through Adam. And you share in, in sinful, fallen Adam's experience. And if you're hanging on Christ's belt, all God's dealings come through Christ. And God deals with you only and always through Christ. And so we find that God gives to Christ a people before creation. He chooses us in Christ before the foundation of the world. And we find that Christ dies for his covenant people, for those whom the Father has given him. He says, I lay down my life for the sheep. He's, we're told that Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. And when by God's grace we believe in Christ, something massive is happening. What is happening is, that Almighty God is unhooking you from Adam's belt and he's taking you and hooking you on to Christ's belt so that you now have a different head, a different mediator, a different representative, and you have passed from Adam into Christ. And whereas God always dealt with you through Adam, now he always deals with you through Christ. And you are permanently and always, and utterly, and totally, and everlastingly in Christ. We believe in Christ, or into Christ, or upon Christ. Wouldn't it be wonderful to explore that idea for lots of doctrines? Could a believer fall away? How can someone hanging on Christ's belt fall away and be lost? It's impossible. And this union with Christ is at the basis of the whole of the Christian life. 
And almost every doctrine you, you look at, you'll find that it's linked in with union with Christ. Take, for example, Romans 6, the doctrine of sanctification. What's that based on? Union with Christ. You died with Christ. You, ra- you have been raised with Christ. You're not an Adam any longer. Live accordingly. Suffering in our lives, what's that based on? Union with Christ. We suffer with him. Our death, we fall asleep in Jesus. Union with Christ. Our resurrection, God has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It is absolutely fundamental. Every prayer you pray goes through Jesus Christ. Every answer you receive comes through Jesus Christ. Every forgiveness, every blessing, everything God does for you, every answer you receive comes through Jesus Christ. Every forgiveness, every blessing, everything God does for you, He does because of Christ and through Christ only. He is your only access to God your only avenue of approach to God. There is no other way to come in contact with the grace of God than through Christ. It is utterly and absolutely fundamental. Now the question is, is this going to stop suddenly in heaven? Is the Father going to break that bond and turn us loose from the Savior? Is he going to say, well, it was useful for you to be in Christ while you were on earth, but but now that is no longer relevant? Well, the answer is obvious. In heaven, still, forever and ever, we will still be on Christ's belt. He will still be our representative. He will still be our head. He will still be our mediator. The Father has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ. He has raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. There's a sort of an idea in people's minds that we need Christ to get us to heaven But once we're safely there, then we don't need him as much. We're very grateful to him and we're glad that he has done so much for him, but we can dispense with him. But you see, that's utterly alien to the teaching of the Bible. We're only in heaven because we're in Christ. And we could never exist for a second in heaven if we weren't in Christ. And we're in Christ more than ever. And we depend on him more than ever. And he's more real to us and more precious to us than ever. Let me illustrate that by two major truths. The first is that in heaven, Christ will continue to reveal God to us. In heaven, Christ will continue to reveal God to us. We're promised that the pure in heart shall see God. Theologians call it the beatific vision. And I say to you frankly that I do not know what that means. And I have not read anyone who has persuaded me that they know what it means either. What does it mean that we shall see God, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit? that God who is triune. Certainly there is some new awareness of the triune God, of the divine nature and perfections, which we cannot here imagine or comprehend. But what I want to suggest to you is this, that we should not divorce the vision of the Father from the presence and person of the Son. For I think that the evidence points 
to the continuing ministry of the Son as the revealer of the Godhead. He is still the Word. He is still the mediator. John Owen, in his work on spiritual mindedness, deals with this issue. I want to give you a rather lengthy quotation, which I don't like to do, but Owen puts it so wisely and well. Owen feels that the the beatific vision of God is, he says, something rare. It is something which ordinary Christians cannot grasp. He says they know not how to exercise their thoughts about this. They cannot reduce it to present usefulness. Scripture gives us another notion of heaven and glory. Not contrary to this, not inconsistent with it, but more suited to the faith and experience of believers. And Owen goes on to say that the Scripture tells us that heaven is where faith is turned into sight. That's the description of heaven. It is where faith is turned into sight. And he asks, what is the principal present object of faith? Into whose room sight must succeed? The infinite, incomprehensible excellencies of the divine nature are not proposed in Scripture as the immediate object of our faith. The manifestation of them in Christ is the immediate object of our faith here and shall be of our sight hereafter. The glory of heaven is the full, open, perfect manifestation of the glory of the wisdom, goodness, and love of God in Christ. So Owen is arguing there that Christ is the principal revealer of God in heaven. And we shall principally see God in Christ. As John says in our theme text, the city had no need of the sun or of the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God illuminated it, and the Lamb is its light. The glory of God illuminated it, and the Lamb is its lamp. The Lamb is the light bearer from which the light shines. And you look at the Lamb, you look at the lamp, and you see the light. And you look at the Lamb, and you see the glory of God. That is why Christ is so central in heaven. Because in heaven, He reveals God to us. And then again, he's central because at the heaven, at the center of heavenly glory is surely redemption. Heaven is the place where God's glory will be fully seen. All of God's glory. We'll have a complete, full-orbed, rounded display of God's perfections. But friends, And here is something so overwhelming as to almost make us fall on our faces before God at the very center and heart of the glory of the infinite almighty God is redemption. Redemption. Paul says in Ephesians 2.7 that it's God's purpose that in the ages to come he might show something. What is it that God above all wants to show, to display through all the ages to come the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Isn't that wonderful? At the very center of heaven the very center of God's display, of God's being, what God above all wants to show is his kindness toward us. 
his grace toward us. That's what the angels desire to look into. That's what they praise God for. That's why one of the characteristic pictures of Christ in the book of Revelation is as the Lamb. Because at the center of heaven is redemption. In the midst of the throne and the four living creatures and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as it had been slain. There you have it. After these things I looked and behold a great multitude which no one could number standing before the throne of God and before the lamb. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. The Lamb who is in the midst of the throne will shepherd them. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. Oh, my friends, is that not an awesome thought? That in Christ, you and I will be at the center of it. That what God is doing for you will be the focus of worship to all eternity. That the angels and the redeemed will look at the frailest, weakest, most insignificant believer here. And they will see something in you so wonderful so awe-inspiring about God that they praise him and praise him for all eternity. That they look at you and say, Oh God, how great you are. How wonderful you are. And it's all in Christ. And not only so, but here's something else even more wonderful, if possible. The fact is that Christ as our Redeemer has raised us to a new, astonishing height of blessing. Remember our covenant theology. Remember our union with Christ. He is exalted high above all. Who is exalted high above all? Who is exalted? The second person of the Godhead? Not just that. The God-man is exalted high above all. The mediator is exalted high above all. The Savior is exalted high above all. And he is exalted high not to take him further away from us, but that we may be raised up in him. For we are in him. And when he's exalted, you're exalted. Did you ever think of that? You're exalted. You're in Christ. And everything that it says about the glory of Christ, you're in Christ if you're a believer. That's why he says, to him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne. That's why Paul says, we are heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. The devil said lyingly, you shall be like God. But he spoke far more truly than he knew. Not that the divide between the creature and the creator will ever be lessened. But it is a fact that we are now raised in Christ to an astounding closeness to God. Because we are united to the second person in the Godhead. That's why Augustine said of Adam's sin, Oh, happy sin. It was a daring statement. But what he was saying was that in Christ, the tribes of Adam boast more blessing than their father lost. And we're now raised far, far higher than if man hadn't ever sinned. And that if man hadn't ever fallen, For God has come down to earth and has become one of us and has taken us into himself. That is why Christ and heaven are so closely identified. 
He brings us to heaven. He is seen clearly in heaven. And he is at the heart of all the blessings of heaven. They all flow through him. And I do believe, my friends, that this doctrine of union with Christ is one of the great unexplored areas in Reformed theology. And there are vistas of glory and magnificence for us here which are yet undiscovered. And I do believe that we're only at the fringe of grasping what it means for us to be raised and exalted with Christ. We tend to think of him as being very far away in heaven. But he won't be. He will be very, very close. That is a thought that just blows the fuses of my mind. Isn't it interesting in in 1 Thessalonians, where Paul is writing to comfort grieving Christians who have lost their loved ones, that he starts out on an enormously precise and detailed and minute description of what is going to happen. He gives us every facet and every fact. The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout. That's the first thing. With the voice of an archangel. That's the second thing. And with the trumpet of God. That's the third thing. And the dead in Christ shall rise first. That's the fourth thing. And we shall be caught up together with them to meet the Lord in the air. That's the fifth thing. And we say, right, let's settle down now to a really thorough, lengthy, detailed description of heaven. And Paul says, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Full stop. Not another word. And we might say, well, wait a minute, Paul. Are you not going to tell us about heaven? And Paul says, I have told you about heaven. Thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore comfort one another with these words. Were there tears in Paul's eyes when he wrote those words? We shall always be with the Lord. I don't want to say any more, he says. I don't need to say any more. And Christians don't need to know any more. We'll be with the Lord. We'll be with the Lord. Christ is central in heaven. Heaven means being with Jesus. Let me, in closing, mention some practical implications. If heaven means being with Jesus, surely it means, friends, that the deeper and richer our fellowship with Christ is now, the more of heaven on earth we can experience. If heaven means being with Jesus, then we need to exercise and use the unspeakable privilege of being with Jesus. Isn't it the tragedy of our modern church life that Christians have to be goaded and urged to keep a time of worship each day? There are all these how-to books on on the quiet time. And people neglect it as if it was a burden and a difficulty and and an unwelcome duty. The worst thing about being a Christian is you have to read your Bible and pray every day. But my friends, there's something terribly wrong with us. If that's a burden, for that's heaven. That's That's the life of heaven. He is the essence of heaven. And it's our privilege here on earth to know Christ and to listen to him and to talk with him and enjoy his friendship and please him and obey him and serve him and become more like him. We should spend more time in heaven than we do. In one of his sermons, Spurgeon says, if we do not get to heaven before we die, we shall never get there afterwards. Have you got to heaven? Have you been in heaven? Spurgeon tells a typical Spurgeonic illustration of a young prince who one morning was found trying on his father's gold crown 
before his father got up. And his father, the king, was quite annoyed with him. But Spurgeon says to his readers and listeners, Try on your crown. Your father won't mind. Try it on as often as you can. We must be more in heaven. Perhaps you remember what Isaac Walton wrote of the great Puritan writer Richard Sibbs, of that blessed man, let this just praise be given, that heaven was in him before he was in heaven. Heaven was on him, was in him before he was in heaven. If heaven means Christ, then I ask you, how much does heaven mean to you? How real is heaven to you? How real is Christ to you? It's surely also a very comforting truth. In J.M. Barry's children's book, Peter Pan, Peter Pan says to die will be an awfully big adventure. And so it will. And sometimes to us, heaven will seem strange. And in our human weakness, we're afraid that seems a mysterious and alien place. And we're a little bit apprehensive about the unknown. And surely it's good to know that the first thing you will see when your soul passes into glory will be Jesus. The first thing you see. And he'll have a smile on his face. And he'll know your name. He'll put his arm around you. He'll say, welcome. And at that moment, you will feel utterly and profoundly at home. This is where I belong. This is where I am at peace. The Savior will welcome you into glory. Heaven is Christ. Dear friend, if you're in Christ, don't be afraid of dying. Don't be afraid of that dark Jordan River, of that valley of the shadow. There's someone waiting for you on the other side. Someone you know. Someone you love. Someone you trust. Someone who has never let you down. Someone who has always loved you. And who knows everything about you. Someone who has been good to you. He's waiting for you. He's waiting for you. He's the first person you'll meet. And you'll be with him forever. Heaven means Christ. But then thirdly and lastly, I must speak to some of you here who may be in a different category. And you who hear me perhaps want to go to heaven. I hope there is no one here who wants to go to hell. And in your heart of hearts, you know that there's such a place called heaven. And yet you know tonight as you listen to me, perhaps some of you young people, that you have never yet received the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior. You have never turned from your sins and called on Jesus to rescue you and deliver you and be your Lord and your King. And yet you believe, you hope that somehow, some way, you will get into heaven. But surely we can see tonight that to think any such thing is madness. Heaven and Christ are almost the same thing. How could anyone who rejects Christ go to heaven? He's the center of heaven. He's the essence of heaven. He's the one who brings us to heaven. He's the one who is seen in heaven. He's the one who shows us God in heaven. How can anyone get to heaven without Christ? How can sincere people of other religions get to heaven without Christ? How can people who try their best get to heaven without Christ? It's crazy. It's madness. There is no other way. 
If Christ were just some peripheral, unimportant little figure in heaven, then it might be possible to conceive of reaching heaven in some other way. But he is the be-all and end-all of heaven. He's the light of heaven. How can we get to heaven without Christ? Some of you boys and girls, some of you young people, have never believed in Jesus. That is a very, very wicked thing. That is the most wicked thing that you can ever, ever do. That's a bad thing to do. It's worse than killing. It's worse than lying. It's worse than stealing. I say to you young people, how dare you not believe in Jesus? Are you not ashamed of yourself? You can look your mom and dad in the face and say, I don't believe in Jesus. Why do you not believe in Jesus? God in his kindness has sent his son to save people and to take them to heaven. And all we have to do is trust in him. And yet there are young people here and you haven't trusted in him. And you say to yourself, well, I've never done anything really bad. Oh, yes, you have. You have done something terribly bad. Terribly bad. You teenagers. Something really, really wicked. Something so evil and horrible that it's devilish. And it is this. You will not believe in Jesus. You will not trust in Jesus. That is a terrible thing to do. Jesus said that when the Holy Spirit comes, he will convict people of sin. He will show people how bad and evil and wicked they are. And what is it he says that he will show to people? Because they do not believe in me. I say to you boys and girls and to you young people and to any older people here who have not yet trusted in Jesus that is not just a small thing it's not something to make a joke about it's not something to forget about it's not something to go away with your friends this evening and laugh and have a good time and have a good conference and say well I haven't done anything really bad you have, you have you won't believe in Jesus how does God feel about that? He has given his son and his son has suffered and died and you won't believe in him. You say, I don't want Jesus. I don't want to trust him. And I say this to you, that if you don't believe in Jesus, you'll never go to heaven. You'll never go to heaven. And to those of you here tonight who have never trusted Jesus, as you walk out of this building, I hope there will be a voice in your mind and heart saying, if I don't believe in Jesus, I'll never go to heaven. My mother will go to heaven. My father will go to heaven. My grandpa and grandma will go to heaven. My brothers and sisters will go to heaven. But I won't go to heaven. And my pastor will go to heaven. And my friends will go to heaven. But I won't go to heaven. And when you're lying down, when you get into your bed tonight, and when you put your head down in the pillow, I hope there's a voice in your mind and heart saying, I'm not going to heaven. I'm not going to heaven. And when you get up tomorrow morning, and when you have your breakfast, and when you meet with your friends, and on and on and on, God will say to you, unless you change, you'll never go to heaven. For the only way to go to heaven is to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior. 
and children and young people and old pe- older people. You can go to heaven. You can believe in Jesus now. In your own heart, no matter how young you are, you can say, Lord Jesus, I know I'm a bad person. I know I've done bad things. Please help me. Please help me to be sorry for the bad things I've done. And please help me to believe in you. Please be my Savior and my Lord. And if you do that, Jesus will come and he'll save you. And you'll go to heaven. Without Christ, without Christ, there is no Is there someone here tonight without Christ? Oh, my friend, don't be without Christ. Call on him now. Ask him to come and to deliver you. Don't shut yourself out from heaven. Let us pray. O God, our Father, we pray that your Holy Spirit will work in the heart of every person in this building. That every single one of us may see the Lord Jesus Christ who came to earth and lived a perfect life and died on the cruel cross and was raised from the dead to be the saviour of sinners. May we see, O God, our need of Christ, that without him we shall never go to heaven, but will be sent to hell forever and forever. Lord, how important he is, how central he is. We can never think of heaven apart from him. And we would pray especially that there will be those here this very night, even these very moments, who will remember all that they have been taught about the Lord Jesus and how wicked it is not to believe in him. And that they will turn aside from that wickedness this very moment. And that even now, they will trust Jesus and cry to him for mercy. And we thank you, O God, for your great kindness and compassion and love, that no matter how bad we have been, you will come to us quickly. You will put your arms around us. You will forgive us and wash away our sins. And you will say, do not be afraid. I will never leave you. I will receive you to heaven to be with me forever. O Lord,